I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared, something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. It seems fair to say, and listen, it's probably a big understatement, that relations between the Canadian government and its counterpart in China are strained between detentions of citizens' criticism of China's human rights abuses, claims of genocide, a failed trade deal threatening Canada's allies, and I could go on. There's no shortage of grievances right now. But even that doesn't quite describe the situation Canada finds itself in. China is a global superpower, a superpower on the rise over the past four years as the United States has turned inwards. China is the big fish, we're a little fish, that's just how it is. And if they want to make an example of us, they probably can. So what are our options? If Canada wanted to retaliate with diplomatic measures, how would we do it? If we wanted to lean on our allies to intervene on our behalf, would they? If Canada decided that it was going to take an active role in foreign affairs and martial resistance to the Chinese government's ascent. How would we even go about that? Where would we begin? How did things go so wrong with this relationship in less than five years? How could relations get better? And it's also fair to ask, do we want them to? Jordan Heath-Rawlings, and this is The Big Story. Stephanie Carvin is an associate professor of international affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Hey, Stephanie. Hello. Why don't we start with you describing the relationship uh, between Canada and China right now in just a word or two? Bad. <laughs> And probably getting worse. Great. It's not the most sophisticated analysis. I mean, if I was to be slightly more generous, I, you, do you remember when Facebook, everyone had, it's complicated? Uh, it's definitely that, but I think it's now on the worst side of it's complicated. Right. It's really remarkable, actually, how in five years, the you know, we were talking about free trade agreements five years ago between Canada and China, and now we actually see political parties suggesting that we actually need to stop trading with China altogether. And that's a very quick turnaround for just a very few years. Has it ever been uh, this tense or this bad before? I mean, historically, of course, I mean, there was, you know, way back when, of course, you know, communist China first emerged in 1949. The relations, of course, are pretty bad. But even then, you know, Canada was one of the first countries to reestablish its diplomatic relations with China. Um, there's, of course, stories of Norman Bethune, who is a doctor in China, who is thought of very, very well. Um, you hear stories of, you know, Chinese remembering that Canada sent food aid when there was a famine in China. So, you know, even in the dark periods of the Cold War, there seemed to be a relationship between the two countries that was maintained. Um 
so it, it's, you know, we're in a very different time. So it's hard to say mm-hmm. the extent to which relations are bad. You can think of perhaps the post-Tiananmen period. But right now, the level of tension between the two countries is really remarkable, especially, again, you know, just five years ago, if you think of it was the policy of the Trudeau government to try and have a free trade deal. So you said uh, right off the top, you know, bad and getting worse. Um, And certainly recently there have been a number, I guess, of headlines about a whole bunch of different things that that highlight those tensions. Can you maybe sum up the last few weeks or month or so, and then maybe we'll do a zoom out and, you know, the big picture of how we got here? Right. It's it's really a number of fronts that we have seen. There was, of course, the trial of the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor. These, of course, were the two Canadians that were detained in December 2018 almost certainly in retaliation for Canada arresting Meng Wanzhou, the chief financial officer of Huawei. Uh, On very short notice, and perhaps not entirely coincidentally, right before the meeting between um, the new U.S. Secretary of State and uh, the Chinese foreign minister, uh, there was a a trial that was held entirely in secret for the two Michaels. Uh, There was no verdict given in those trials, but we we do know those trials were held. And we do know that the United States has been putting more pressure on China with regards to some of its very harsh retaliatory policies, whether it's against Australia and uh, some of the harsh measures that have been put against that country because of some of the measures it's taking in terms of national security, as well as Canada, uh, the fact that it has kind of taken hostage and is engaging in hostage diplomacy. China seems to be trying to make the point that, you know, regardless of which administration is in power, China is going to continue to do what it wants to do, regardless of the preferences of the United States. So there was that whole issue that happened uh, within the last month. And then, of course, there's been another series of political events in Ottawa. The Conservative Party put forward a motion to recognize the fact that there is a genocide happening in Xinjiang against the Uyghur minority population. And certainly news reports have suggested that there could be somewhere between one to three million Uyghurs that are kept in very deplorable conditions. They are the most heavily surveyed population in the world. There are stories about forced sterilization in that province as well, that they're prohibited from exercising their culture, from speaking um, their language, practicing their religion. And, you know, to most people, that does actually sound like a kind of genocide and Mm -hmm. parliament recognized this. And this was absolutely condemned by the Chinese government. And then finally, within the last week, it's interesting. We saw a number of steps taken by the Canadian government with regards to foreign investment. There were two announcements made. There was a research policy statement about university research and links to uh, foreign governments and and state-owned enterprises, as well as a statement uh, basically that outlined and described some of the steps that Canada is taking in order to uh, protect Canada from foreign investments that may be non-commercial in nature. And that's the language they're using, that these are motivated, you know, investments of concern that are motivated by non-commercial imperatives. And although China is not specifically mentioned in any of these documents, these are new policies that are being put in place, almost certainly aimed over concerns about China and Chinese foreign investment in Canada. And so, you know, these three events, among a whole other series of tensions, uh, geopolitical, 
uh, geoeconomic, have really defined the Canada-Chinese relationship in 2021 so far. And we're only three months in. You mentioned the trial of the two Michaels and the detention of Meng Wanzhou. Was that where all this started in late 2018? Were there any signs of the relationship deteriorating before that? Um, where did it begin? So I think it probably began with the failure of the free trade agreement between China and Canada. Justin Trudeau went to China with a view of trying to get a free trade agreement, uh, even though there were some concerns uh, on national security levels, and it it fell through. Basically, uh, a lot of the things that Canada wanted, China was not prepared to negotiate on. Effectively, China basically gave Canada an agreement and said, take it or walk away, and Canada decides to walk away uh, very suddenly. So that was probably the start of this. And then there's been another series of events since. There have been a number of Canadian companies where Chinese foreign investors have wanted to invest, and that has been turned down. Uh, There has also been concerns about some of the behaviors of China, um, again, geopolitically, with regards to its moves in the South China Sea, with regards to some of the actions it's taken against Canadian allies, again, particularly Australia. So all of this was occurring before the arrests in uh, December 2018. And, but, but I would argue that that was really kind of the crisis point in Canada China relations. And we did that, if I'm uh, recalling correctly, we did that because the United States asked us to, right? So, what role, um, what role has the other superpower in our lives played in exacerbating this relationship? I guess I'm trying to understand, like, are we caught in a tug of war kind of? Yes and no. I mean, I think so many of Canada's foreign policy problems can kind of be seen through this Huawei issue, our relations with the United States, our relations with China, how we're dealing with uh, foreign investment and and technology that's coming from adversarial countries. I mean, there's just so many different issues in this one particular instance that kind of happened in December 2018. But yes, you're right. Uh, We basically, there was a a request by the U.S. government to Detain Meng Wanzhou. She was uh, traveling through Canada, I believe, on her way to Mexico. And uh, so that's why she is in Vancouver uh, right now. And she's fighting extradition really on on two fronts. There's the uh, extradition hearings themselves, but she's also arguing that there was an abusive process when when she was arrested. So, yeah, I mean, we've seen a lot of criticism of that decision to actually arrest Meng Wanzhou. Uh, We have seen, uh, for example, John Manley, former deputy prime minister, said, you know, this was a point where we could have had creative of incompetence, I believe was the word he used, and to just, oops, she, she got through and, and not do what the United States asked. Uh, we've also seen a lot of calls for us to say, well, you know, forget the United States. Let's just do what China wants to get our two Michaels back. Uh, I, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, when people try to portray it as a tug of war, I mean, our relationship with the United States is not a relationship with China. And I don't want to, you know, sit and, and look at our relationship with the United States through entirely rose-colored glasses. The last four years were pretty bad in terms of Canada-U.S. relations, right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's a country with – we share a history. We share a border. They are still, you know – of our trade goes to the United States. And to a large extent, we share a culture with them as well. So to say this is kind of like an even tug of war is probably not the case. And, you know, 
whatever the United States has has done to Canada, particularly in the last four years, they, they haven't taken our citizens hostage in order to have their uh, executives released from Canadian prison. So, you know, I, I think we have to be careful with that analogy. But at, a, at the same time, I think we can acknowledge that as China becomes this rising geopolitical force, it is forcing Canada to rethink our dependencies on some of our allies and recognizing the fact that, you know, our allies might not always be there to defend us as well. Um, you know, not to get too far off topic, but, you know, it looks like Trumpism is going to survive Trump. Mm -hmm. And if the United States turns to a, a more isolationist version of itself, then, you know, we might have to start dealing with China in, on a greater number of issues. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. Speaking of China being a rising geopolitical power, how much of our relationship with them is unique to Canada's difficulties with China? And how much of it is just the way China is kind of taking on many of the, the formerly uh, predominant nations in the world um, as it rises? So I don't want to overemphasize the uniqueness of Canada's uh, difficulties with China. Certainly, we're not alone in this, and certainly we're not the, alone in having our nationals effectively taken hostage or arrested uh, by China. There's other countries, uh, Australia, Sweden as well. We are a little bit different in the sense that we are a G7 country. China might look at us as, as weak. I mean, the Canadian population, 37, 38 million, is the size of kind of a an average Chinese city. Mm -hmm. So I think on the one hand, we do actually have, you know, a, a unique position in the world, particularly vis-a-vis -vis our relationship with the United States. At the same time, one of the things that really concerned me about the Trump years was that some countries seem to be looking to Canada as kind of a an example for other countries. So not just China, but also perhaps uh, Saudi Arabia as well, where, you know, it decided to suddenly take out or, or really diminish its relations with Canada because we had spoken out about Saudi human rights issues. So, you know, it, and really a, a lot of people speculate that what you know, Mohammed bin Salman, the uh, who will likely become king eventually of that country, the message he was trying to send is, look, uh, rest of the world, if you go on the wrong side of us or if you cross us in any way, we're going to do to you what we did to Canada. Mm. And you don't want that. And, you know, same with China. And you have to, you know, wonder in taking our two Michaels hostage, you know, are they trying to send a message to the rest of the world that, you know, if you do something that we don't like, we are going to retaliate against your people in our country. So does Canada become the scapegoat or in the, you know, kind of symbol, symbolic representation of what will happen to other countries? Because, you know, we're not the United States and we're not a country within the European Union where, you know, we have a large block who will stand up for our interests. In a lot of ways, we're kind of alone. So again, this kind of gets back to my point of, you know, this whole situation kind of really being symbolic of, of where Canada is in the world these days and 
really kind of raising some important questions about what we do about that. That was a great answer, and it leads right into uh, another tricky question that I have, I guess. Um, You mentioned the EU and the United States, and well, it's nice that we're on friendly terms with them, that we are essentially alone. So if you leave out um, those two powers, what options do we really have just as Canada against a nation like China? We don't. We don't have a lot of options. As a middle power, I mean, admittedly, we are a G7 country. Admittedly, we have things that China wants, whether it's energy, agricultural products. Uh, you know, there's just not a lot we can do. And and this is something that's really concerned me. And I think this is a lesson we really do need to take from the past four years, is that are we prepared to live in a world where our allies are not necessarily prepared to speak up for us in a way that perhaps we have traditionally been accustomed to. Now, we shouldn't exaggerate this too much. Um, One of the important things that Canada did recently was develop a coalition of almost 60 states to basically become a network and alliance against hostage-taking diplomacy so that if a country does detain someone, for political purposes. You know, all the other countries will speak up on behalf of that country as well. And I think that's a really good thing, right? That's an institution diplomatically that we're building. And that's the kind of thing that we need to do. But we're kind of out of practice. You know, when I think of Canadian foreign policy, I sometimes think of, you know, the high school football hero 10 years down the road, and he's kind of living former glories and, you know, thinking back and reminiscing with his friends about all the good times, but really maybe hasn't done a lot to kind of maybe exercise the muscles that he once had. And I think sometimes Canada is in the same position. We really haven't exercised our diplomatic muscles. We haven't uh, really invested in our foreign service, in our, you know, capacity to act abroad. We don't have a very large diplomatic toolkit. And, you know, this is the thing. I mean, we can go on about China all we want. And, you know, I think there's a lot to complain about. But we have to also look at ourselves and be like, you know, well, what have we done to prepare to live in a world that's a little bit more scary? I mean, did we just kind of hide under the bed for four years and hope that some of the monsters would go away? Well, maybe they have for now, but will they forever? And have we taken the lessons from the United States, from China, from an EU that's kind of looking towards itself? And have we learned to develop the kinds of instruments that we're going to need in order to get our points across to ensure that we can develop the kinds of alliances and opportunities and networks that we're going to need to live in this new world. And so my view is we haven't. And, and this is this is a real concern that, you know, uh, there's been a lot going on, you know, whether it's on the free trade front, whether it's on the pandemic front, I, I get that. But we are going to need to have a more sophisticated foreign policy, more tools, more of a presence overseas. We can't just turn in on ourselves because I do worry that, you know, right now it's China, but it could be other countries in the future as well. I think whether you are a critic of China or you're a supporter of China or at least closer ties with China, we all seem to agree on the same thing, which is that the rise of China is going to be Canada's most important foreign policy challenge of the 21st century, how we actually manage to handle it. And we need to develop the tools 
to be able to do that to and, and to do this in a way. But it's not just China. I mean, if we develop a stronger foreign policy generally, it's going to help us in a lot more challenges. So I appreciate us having a stronger foreign policy would not necessarily have stopped the two Michaels from having been arrested. But it might have meant we wouldn't have to wait two and a half years for the government to develop some kind of alliance against diplomatic kidnapping. Things might have happened a lot sooner on the ground had we perhaps been a little bit more creative or had more boots on the ground internationally. Well, to stretch your high school quarterback metaphor, possibly past uh, the breaking point, what what would we actually have to do to build those muscles? Like, what's the foreign policy equivalent of of leg day or chest day or whatever? <laughs> um, I, I like I like this analogy. It's in no way is it is it being stretched. Um, I think there's a number of things we can do. Is first of all, we need more people overseas. We need more consulates. We need to invest in our foreign service. We just simply haven't hired diplomats for a long time. I you know a lot of our foreign policy is basically being run by co-op students on 90-day contracts. And I know this because a lot of those students are my students. Um, you know, th- this isn't the way to run a railroad. We need to renew the foreign service. We need to ensure that diplomats have the skills and the training that they need to confront issues. So it's it's you know we it's not just now you know, diplomatic trade agreements, but also, you know, do we have diplomats that understand the issues around data and around technology and around the internet, for example? Right. You know, these are the kinds of things that are really important. I think the second thing is, too, is that foreign policy has both centralized and disaggregated in a way that, uh, you know, maybe has left our our toolkit a little bit weaker than it should have been. So, for example, uh, a lot of the foreign policy decisions are now made in the prime minister's office, not a global affairs Canada. And in addition, a lot of foreign policy decisions are also now made at Food and Agriculture Canada. They're now made at, um, you know, innovation, science, and economic development, right, about technology and and what kind of agreements we're going to be getting in and internet policy. They're now being made at public safety. I mean, all these different kinds of ministries are making foreign policy. So, So what is it that we want our diplomats to do? What is it that we think they can achieve? And how should they be coordinating between, you know, the politicians and the different ministries that have seen their role in foreign policy increase, even as our budget on foreign policy really hasn't expanded that much in the past 20 years? In the meantime, uh, whether or not we managed to do that, um, and and I think it's fair to say our government is probably focused on on other things right now, as you mentioned. But what will you be watching for next in this uh, saga? Like, what's the next possible inflection point? So, with regards to the two Michaels specifically, what is going to be interesting to see is that if there is some kind of trilateral deal between Canada, and the United States and China. So for example, will there be some kind of plea deal with Meng Wanzhou where she agrees that, yes, you know, I I committed bank fraud, uh, she pays a large fine, Huawei basically gives a mea culpa, and then she is released as, as, or the charges are dropped, she goes back to China, and then hopefully China will release the two Michaels. That would be perhaps the easiest and, and, and most welcome outcome. Um, And and certainly I would hope that diplomatic talks are continuing because uh, the trial process will take a very long period of time. The issue with China and Canada, though, is going to take much longer. I mean, we need to be looking at this in decades, not looking at this 
in terms of, you know, a few weeks or a few months. There has been real damage done between the relationship. And and I do worry about that because um, I worry that sometimes in Canada we have really just two suggestions. We either use loud rhetoric or sanctions. And that's not particularly useful in this case, right? Uh, We need to actually, as I've been arguing, expand our diplomatic tools and do more outreach, not just to our allies, but also to China itself. We do need diplomatic solutions as well as, you know, working with our allies to ensure security. How China responds to this is is you know, kind of the the real question. Uh, President Xi does not seem to be a person who wants to back down. Um, I don't really see any real progress on this for the next little while. I think a lot will depend on whether Western countries can maybe kind of get their act together, start maybe coordinating in terms of uh, both protecting human rights, but also things like, uh, you know, policies about protecting foreign investment, science and technology development, all these kinds of things. The last thing I'll say, though, is that I just want to acknowledge that this conversation is taking place in a period of heightened anti-Asian violence, and we need to be very cognizant of this. And when we have this discussion, we also need to appreciate that, you know, when, when we talk about our concerns with China, we have to do so in a way that's also Acknowledging the fact that this may have a dangerous impact on uh, a number of Canadians uh, of Asian descent. And we need to be very careful that when we say China, we don't mean, you know, Chinese. We need to be careful when we talk about the Beijing government. We don't, you know, we're, we're not implicating people who are here in this country just living their lives. It, it, it is something that we do need to worry about. Um, and I think it is very much at the forefront of the minds of a lot of people in Canada and in uh, Canadian foreign policy and security right now as well. That's a really good point to end on. And uh, I'm sure that there are a lot of people worried right now about the impact of this, uh, this diplomatic spat on the actual ground where people are trying to live. Stephanie, thank you so much um, for walking us through this today. Thank you for having me on. Stephanie Carvin of Carleton University. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. As always, talk to us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can find us on email, thebigstorypodcast at rci.rogers.com. And in any podcast player you care to use, and also on your voice assistants, just ask for us, The Big Story Podcast. We'll be back on Monday. We are taking a long weekend. Claire Broussard, Stephanie Phillips, and Ryan Clark are the producers of The Big Story. And I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk on Monday. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.